here for my first class of the week at the APP conference. Say hi, Whitney. Hi, Whitney. Say hi for a podcast, everybody. The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell. The fate of the world is in your hands. You're listening to the Piercing Wizard podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Alright, welcome to another episode of the Piercing Wizard Podcast, everybody. I'm Ryan Willette. I uh, just wanted to say thank you for uh, the great response I've been getting from the show. You know, we've got new subscribers. We've got uh, some really nice feedback that I've been getting from people listening to the show. Not just other body piercers, but people that are just interested in body piercing also. It's it's great to hear feedback and, and uh, know that I'm, I'm doing something right with the show. This week's guest is Jim Ward. If you already know who Jim Ward is, um, you know how big of a deal he is and how much of an impact he's had on this industry. Uh, he opened essentially the world's first professional body piercing studio in uh, in Hollywood in the late 70s. Kind of grew out of the, the, the kink community and brought it into uh, more of a professional light. Uh, spawned... Uh, a, a lot of great piercers in the industry, very influential, uh, Paul King, Elaine Angel, uh, Gauntlet, the, the business that he started, basically was the, the catalyst of the Association of Professional Piercers. Um, so through our conversation, Jim kind of talks about some of the, the early days of Gauntlet and the early days of the APP, uh, talking about different jewelry styles. Uh, Jim is, is credited with creating a lot of the different styles used in, in early body piercing and in even modern body piercing. Um, also the challenges of things like needles, you know, where do you, where do you get needles if there is no body piercing industry? So talking about uh, the zenith uh, of that and, and the progression that he had to, uh, to kind of go through and those certain things. So it's a, it's a really interesting conversation, and uh, listening to it back, uh, editing it, really gives me a, a lot of ideas for future questions that I have, so uh, I hope to interview Jim again in the future and talk a little bit more and just uh, get a little bit more of the, the history. Uh, if you don't have the uh, Running the Gauntlet book that Jim wrote, I, I would say definitely try to get online and, and pick that up if you're a body piercing fan or a body piercer. It's just fantastic history, so I really can't recommend it highly enough. But here's this week's interview with Jim Ward. Uh, we're here at the 22nd Annual Association of Professional Piercers Conference. My name's Ryan Willett, and I'm here with Jim Ward. I'm sure you get it all the time, people talking about how you influenced their careers, how you influenced the industry. You had a, a really big impact on, on my career. I remember when I started piercing uh, in the 90s, Gauntlet was always this kind of like mythical entity out there in the, in the piercing world. I never really thought that it's something I could you know, achieve or, or, or attain that kind of skill level. Uh, I saw the different seminars as something like I, you know, I would I would love to be able to to make it there. I never did make it to to one of the Gauntlet seminars, but that whole point in my career, it was that was kind of the pinnacle of, of piercing achievement for for me. Um, so you know, first I would just kind of like to say thank you. 
uh, my pleasure. for how you influence my career and influence the career of, I'm, I'm going to say, pretty much everybody else in the industry also. So what do you feel is is your your main legacy in the industry? Do you feel that it's the creation of the APP? Do you feel like it's the bringing body piercing into a, a more professional forefront or, or what do you what do you feel is your legacy in the industry? Probably from very, from very early on it was like I wanted to give a, legit, a legitimacy mm-hmm. to what was basically a fetish mm-hmm. for most people. That's, yeah. that's where this whole modern phenomena really grew out of the whole fetish community. Yeah. I mean, my own le- background was in the gay uh, BDSM mm-hmm. leather fetish community. Yeah. Paul King was speaking today on uh, women in the porn industry mm-hmm. and, and illustrated a lot of piercing goes, but uh, the piercing fetish goes back a long way. Yeah. But when I met Doug, it was a, a situation, this is Doug Malloy, yeah. for those who are unaware. Uh, Doug, it was, again, part of this whole fetish thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the wonderful things about body piercing, especially when you think about it in terms of sexuality, is that the way I describe it is those little pieces of metal mm-hmm. placed in strategic parts of the body can really amplify the sensations and make sex better. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of where I was coming from. I wanted to be able to share this with other people yeah. and say, look, you know, here is something to make your sex lives, mm-hmm. you know, enhance them, yeah. make them better. Yeah. So that was kind of where I was coming from. So when, when you started performing piercing, uh, was it more in like the like the home base like tattoo and piercing parties and then it kind of grew into a professional service? We let's be very upfront. Yeah. That tattooing was never really a part of anything okay. that I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have tattoos. Mm-hmm. I think they're great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just that was not my focus. Yeah. There were plenty of other great tattooists. Not so much performing, but more like uh, collectors uh, right yeah I mean there is a certain compatibility you know Mm -hmm. the salt and pepper uh, bread and jam sort of thing Mm -hmm. but uh, there's also a very there's a certain animosity from the tattoo side yeah Uh, even though there's a lot of commonality I mean they're all as we all know they're part of the whole body mod spectrum Mm -hmm. Um, but my focus was strictly on piercing. Yeah. And Gauntlet was, to the best of my knowledge, the first body piercing studio mm-hmm. dedicated exclusively to body piercing. Yeah. I mean, there were tattooists like Tattoo Sammy in Germany and Mr. Sebastian in London mm-hmm. um, who did piercing as kind of a sideline, but that wasn't their main focus. They were tattooists. Yeah. Uh, and with Gauntlet, that was my sole focus was mm-hmm. on, on body piercing. So what was the what was the dynamic like from moving into more of a, 
uh, a sexuality fetish based, I don't want to use the word hobby, but when it turned into more of a professional service, how did you notice that dynamic changing? Did it become more, you started to get more mainstream clients that were getting it less for sexuality reasons and more for aesthetic reasons? For a lot of years, it was, well, my clientele, of course, started out very much with the, the gay BDSM community. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of expanded rather quickly into the, the straight BDSM community. And then you pick up, you know, the bikers. Yeah. And then the, the punks and mm -hmm. the rockers. And it, the, it just kind of continued to expand yeah. until 1989 when Modern Primitives came out mm -hmm. and it just went Blew nuts. Yeah. And at that point it really turned the corner from that focus on sensation and sexuality mm -hmm. into, you know, things like oh, navel piercings and nostrils and, and things that were all more, you know, much more decorative. Yeah. So how did it come about, you know, because there are lots of other influential piercers that are connected to the gauntlet name, um, Paul King, Elaine Angel. Uh, how, did you, how did you come across some of these individuals and how did they kind of get pulled into the, the fold of gauntlet? What really happened was in uh, 1988 is when I met my husband Drew mm -hmm. and I decided to move to San Francisco to be with him. Mm -hmm. And at first I'd considered, well, well, should I just move the business to San Francisco? And then I decided, well, actually maybe it was better just to leave the studio in, in West Hollywood mm -hmm. and look towards opening a second one in San Francisco because I was going up there on a regular basis doing what I call piercing clinics. At yeah. Mr. S. Leather and... Uh, there was a photographer there in San Francisco named Mark Chester and we used to do piercing rituals with Fakir and so there was definitely a, a group there in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So I decided it was time to, you know, start training yeah. somebody else to, to take over the management of the, of the Los Angeles uh, West Hollywood store. Mm -hmm. and. I hired a guy, well, I hired a woman who used to work for Gauntlet who just did not have the kind of personality to deal with the public. Yeah. And then I hired a guy who was was somewhat crazy and mm -hmm. had very little self-control. Yeah. And that didn't work out. And so Elaine Angel had been a client of mine for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, hey. I'm over here, <laughs> how about me? Yeah. And she was such a natural, mm -hmm. and she just took to it. I mean, she'd already been sort of doing piercing on the side on her own yeah. uh, with her friends and stuff. And so I worked with her to bring her up to speed, mm -hmm. and she just took off. She was such a natural. And then Paul King was uh, one of the people that she brought on board. Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of how that all got started. Sounds great. It's like a family tree. Yeah. So uh, for the people listening who might not be aware of it, you are one of the, the main driving forces of the creation of the APP. Yes. Uh, well, I, I don't like to take credit. as I was sort of the producer, mm -hmm. and Michaela Gray was yeah. the one who actually put in the work. Mm -hmm. 
or a, a lot of the work. Yeah, um, because basically uh, she was an employee of Gauntlet who was receiving a salary, but her salary was essentially to be the administrator yes. of the APP. Right. Yeah. She was uh, for some time. She was my kind of my personal assistant. Mm -hmm. I had sort of withdrawn so much from being behind the counter and uh, spent quite a bit of time in the office. Mm -hmm. And Michaela was my kind of right-hand person. Mm -hmm. She helped a great deal with uh, curating the materials for PFIQ. Mm -hmm. She was really phenomenal when it came to putting together Gauntlet's piercer training seminars. And then she went on to do the uh, creation of the APP pulling the the various people, you know, who were in this burgeoning industry, pulling them together and saying, you know, look, we need to do this yeah. or the state's going to come down on our heads and yeah. put us out of business. So I give her 90% of the credit. Mm -hmm. I was the man behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how difficult was it to, to take a group of people who might have had kind of strong personalities and, and put them together in a group and, and get them to, to work together. It sounds like it would be almost like wrangling cats, like trying well, to... it was not easy. Yeah. If you look at the, I think there's that photo of the early, the mm. first meeting, and look at the number of people who actually got involved in APP, yeah. they weren't very many. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of them fell by the wayside. Yeah. Or went their own way or said, we don't need this. Mm -hmm. or we don't care or yeah yeah <laughs> it seems like that now now there are all the different organizations popping up around the world there's the UK group and you know there are groups in Italy Brazil Mexico all over and it seems like they have to kind of cross that border of all right we're going to try to do this for the overall industry and not our, our personal gain and it seems like that's one of the more difficult obstacles to cross. There have been a lot of obstacles, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, trying to set standards and every, every, you know, it's like every manufacturer has their own way of doing things. Mm -hmm. There was all this wrangling over, well, what is the minimum size jewelry we should put in this piercing? Yeah. Uh, and then all, all the different concerns about different materials and what's safe and what isn't. And uh, you get a lot of personalities involved, mm -hmm. and they have their own interests to protect. Yeah, uh, it made it very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, I am—I never cease to be amazed when I see the industry now and see the APP now mm -hmm. that they have been able to do such an incredible job. I mean, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah, the, even just being—you know—I've—I've I've really only been in, involved with the APP for maybe the last. 15 years or so, and even just in that time, just seeing the, the growth of it worldwide is, is really impressive. Oh, it's, it never ceases to boggle my mind. Yeah. Talking about jewelry, uh, you're credited with, with designing a lot of the styles of body jewelry that are, that are used today. Was that something where it was kind of trial and error, or did it just kind of feel intuitive to you, and you kind of had the thought process of, oh, this makes the most sense, so... Well, I, Doug Malloy was a, a definite influence. Mm -hmm. I mean, he pointed, made it very clear, and it was actually pretty obvious, that the things that people were using for piercings were just not really the best way to go. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
for instance, earrings are so thin that you put them in body piercings and they cut. Yeah. Or they're terribly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And people were rigging things up by bending pieces of wire and stuff. And, you know, either the materials aren't appropriate to be in the body mm -hmm. or they've got sharp edges or catches or something that catches on clothing or bedding. And mm -hmm. it took some work to, to work out what, you know, was the best approach. I mean, yeah. I remember in the beginning, Doug and I sitting down, well, is it best to start with a barbell or is it best to start with a ring? Mm -hmm. We're speaking of nipples in this particular case. Will it heal better with a straight bar? Will it heal better with the, the ring? Mm -hmm. Well, the, the barbell, the balls can get in the way and keep oxygen from getting in the piercing and, and helping it heal. Uh, but the curve on the ring, you know, all of this debate back and forth. In those days, we'd finally decided that rings were probably the best solution. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's necessarily borne out <laughs> in modern day. Uh, I haven't had any lengthy discussions with anyone about it. Yeah. But uh, that was kind of the philosophy. And mm -hmm. we realized that uh, you needed heavier gauges. Mm -hmm. And we thought that... At that time, the minimum gauge was 16, but then there was, even at the beginning in that first meeting of APP, there was a big argument about, well, what is the best for, I forget, was it a labia piercing or a clit hood piercing or something? Well, somebody well known in the community said, oh, it's 18 gauge is perfectly fine. And there were lots of disagreements, but uh, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> So what are some of the other styles that you experimented with with jewelry, whether they were successful and you stuck with them long term or whether they were just kind of temporary like stepping stones along the way to other styles? Well, <clears throat> the first piece of jewelry I actually designed, I was dating a guy. This was very early on before Gauntlet. I had pierced my own nipples some years before and this boyfriend of mine wanted me to pierce his nipples and that's when I actually made the initial reaching out to Doug. Mm -hmm. I had met him only once or twice before, so I contacted him and said, well, I've got this boyfriend who wants his nipples pierced, and A, would you show me how, mm -hmm. and B, um, what can we do about jewelry? And Doug said, well, I know this guy in uh, San Diego who make will make custom rings, but they're very expensive. He, mm. he says they're like two hundred dollars, and this was in nineteen seventy four, yeah. seventy five. So a lot of money. Here. That was yeah. a huge amount of money in yeah. those days. So I I had studied jewelry making when I lived in New York, mm -hmm. and actually had taken a class, a professional class for in jewelry making. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Uh, at that time, there was a little shop in Hollywood, a lapidary shop that sold jewelry making stuff, including gold mm -hmm. wire. So I bought some gold wire, I bought a, a, a torch and solder and mm -hmm. the tools that I needed. And I made a piece of jewelry that I called a nipple retainer. And it was just a straight bar with a, a ring that went around it mm -hmm. was kind of like, sort of looked like the letter E. Yep. Um, with the straight part going through the piercing and then the ring kind of clipped mm -hmm. around. It was a practical design and it worked really well for, uh, for initial piercings. Uh, the straight bar and then it was open pretty much at the end mm -hmm. to get 
air into it. That was the first thing that I made, but it was not a style that, that clicked. Yeah. Uh, it, we carried it in the gauntlet line mm -hmm. for many years, but it just never sold enough, and yeah. eventually I just dropped it. Mm -hmm. It didn't make any sense anymore. Yeah. And then there was the whole barbell issue, which was quite an adventure in itself. Yeah. Uh, I started out trying to make, I went to the, the jewelry mart there in Los Angeles and I bought earrings, the ones with the balls, you know, mm -hmm. and I cut the little stud off the back and I was going to solder them on barbell studs. Well, what I didn't realize was that the gold was so thin mm. that after it got hot, the, the, the metal dented just you could dent it with your thumbnail it was oh, so soft yeah and I realized that didn't work yeah so it was really quite fateful I was talking about the problem on the elevator one day there at the jewelry mart and there was another guy on the, the somewhat a stranger on the elevator and he said oh you need to look up I forget the name of the company it was someplace back east he says they make no hole balls mm -hmm. And sure enough, here's this company back in, I guess it was Massachusetts, mm -hmm. that made these gold balls. They were hollow, yep. but uh, you could buy them in any number of sizes, and they were thick enough that they didn't collapse. And occasionally you had a little disaster when you heated them with a torch, yeah. they would explode. Oh, really? <laughs> but... Uh, for the most part, most of the time they were fine, mm -hmm. and I would solder them, you know, with the, the little threaded pin to mm -hmm. make the barbells. So if you had um, a challenge for uh, the jewelry, did you also have a challenge for, for needles? Did you have trouble? Did you start oh, with needles cannulas? Or? No. Um, I started out, actually, with um, hypodermic needles. Okay. Uh, the big one, fat ones from... Um, that veterinaries use. Yep. Uh, Doug had gotten, when I first met him, he had this kit. Mm -hmm. And he used hypoderm these big, fat hypodermic needles. And he showed me, you know, how he was doing them. And I realized, I really ended up in an awkward situation doing some early piercings, trying to do them with a hypodermic, because you can't follow that, that bevel mm -hmm. with a ring. Yeah. And if you take the needle out, then trying to fish the ring through the piercing is problematic, yeah. if not impossible. There were some awkward moments that I had, and then the little light bulb went off one day, and I don't need to do this. Mm -hmm. So I took all of the needles and cut the, the syringe coupling off mm -hmm. and filed down the ends yep. and used those, and they, it, was, it worked brilliantly. Unfortunately, in those days, that's what we had. Yeah. And because it was problematic getting these needles to begin with, we, we just autoclaved them and reused them. Mm -hmm. And they kept getting dollar yeah. and dollar. Yeah. And of course, a lot of them didn't start out very sharp in the first place. Mm -hmm. So uh, it wasn't until actually after I moved to San Francisco in the late 80s that I forget who put me in touch with one of the manufacturers and said, ask them to make cannulas for you. Mm -hmm which is what we did, uh, but even then they, were, they weren't all that sharp. Yeah. 
this was after, of course, the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Mm. So we really needed disposable yeah. needles. And uh, that's what we were doing with the cannulas. We were, we still reused them within, with, on one person. Mm -hmm. You know, we would do multiple piercings with this, on the same person with, yeah. a, with a single needle to get, because they were a lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't until somebody started mass producing them yeah. just for the industry that it became really practical to have totally disposable, one-use piercing needles. When did you start to see industries catching up to the body piercing industry, uh, needle manufacturers, tool manufacturers, a multitude of, of jewelry manufacturers? When did you really start to see that kind of tipping point? That would really have been in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. As I said, after modern primitives came on or came out, uh, the whole industry, I mean, the, it's like there was a suddenly a piercing shop on every corner. Yeah. Whether they were qualified or trained or anything, it was like, uh, oh, I can make money poking holes in people. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's nothing to it, you know. That was seemed to be the philosophy. So it wasn't until that point that things began to change yeah. and we begin well when you get that many people in need of the products then there has to be somebody to fill that need yeah and so there was you know it just blossomed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember in in one of your your fireside chats maybe last year or the year before uh, you were saying that one of the things that I don't, I don't think you were Posing it as a as a negative, but that you've seen um, the the personal uh, and inward sexuality of body piercing kind of deteriorate as the industry kind of moves on an, an upward professional trend. You see it uh, less about expressing sexuality and and um, fetish for it. Do you do you feel like that's kind of a, a detriment? Do you feel like that's something that the industry has been losing when they have this kind of hyper focus on on professionalism? I think it's less about the professionalism than it is about the shift from uh, things like nipples and genital piercings mm -hmm. to non-sensual areas like mm -hmm. navels and nostrils and ears and noses and mm -hmm. lips and tongues and <laughs> yeah. all kinds of other body parts. Yeah. That shift, I think, is probably has more to do with it. Yeah, when it's, it's less about the bedroom and more about kind of fashion and, and right. showing off the piercing. Yeah. I mean, it, even here at the conference, I mean, what you see is basically from the neck up. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, the focus is on the visual stuff, the yeah. stuff that you see. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I started Gauntlet, almost all of my, my customers, you wouldn't know that they what was going on under those clothes. Mm -hmm. Those are those are actually still some of my favorite clients. Uh, you know, the gentleman will come in with his his, his tie and you know his button down shirt, and uh, you kind of get that instant feeling of like, oh, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to see you naked within the next <laughs> couple of minutes, and I know what you're here for. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would want to to tell the the younger generations of body piercers that are just kind of starting out in the industry? Any any advice for them? Well, I like to think that they would like to learn something about their history mm -hmm. where they came from like like to plug my book certainly <laughs> <laughs> but also uh, you know learn you mm -hmm. know 
conference is a great place for, for newbies to come and yeah. take classes and learn about the safety, the hygiene, mm. the sterilization, how to, the bedside manner, picking the right piece of jewelry to go with a particular piercing. All of those basic skills, yeah. uh, get as much of it as you can. Mm -hmm. If you're going to make your life work, make it your life work, then you better need to know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, you mentioned your book, uh, Running the Gauntlet. Yes. Where can you find that online? Uh, the URL is runningthegauntlet-book.com. It's got a, a bunch of just great stories in it. I mean, it, it, it seems like if you could live uh, a tenth of that in your own life, it would be a full life. It just seems a, like a, it's a really rich history that you've, that you've had. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it was great. Yeah, it was a really, really nice read. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really nice to, to still, you know, see you at conference every year and, uh, you know, to, to listen to your, your chats and, and uh, to see you and Drew, uh, you know, signing, signing the books for all the different piercers, uh, buying it. And really, you know, they don't understand uh, the history of their own industry and they get to read a book like that and it really gets to, to shed a new light on, on their careers. It's, it's great to, to see that. It's nice to, to know your roots. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, thanks for chatting with me, Jim. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Thank All you, right. Ryan. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to answer a question from the internet. This one says, I recently got my nipples pierced, and I noticed that the piercer placed Vaseline on the needles before inserting them through my nipple. He said that it makes the needle easier to go through. Is that correct? Should I be worried at all? Uh, yes and no. If it was actually Vaseline or some sort of petroleum ointment, that's really not ideal to have inside the body. Uh, petroleum basically would, would clog up the piercing site. Uh, it would make the piercing really problematic. Uh, Vaseline and petroleum products, once they get inside the skin, they're very difficult for your body to, to naturally discharge. Petroleum ointments aren't meant to be used on puncture wounds and things like that in, internally on the body. Uh, there is the possibility that you only thought that it was Vaseline. Uh, it's, it's a very common practice for body piercers to put a small amount of water-based lubricant on their needle to help it glide through easier. So it's possible that it was this when you might have thought it was Vaseline. Uh, just having some sort of a, a viscous ointment on the, the tray doesn't necessarily mean that it was, it was Vaseline or a petroleum product. Uh, if they said it was Vaseline, then yeah, that would be not uh, not ideal to to have in your body. So you might want to consider um, requesting that your piercer doesn't use it in the future, or even p potentially finding a new place to get pierced. All right, I've got another question submitted here. It says, do you recommend antimicrobial soap for nipple piercings? I had been using a saline wound wash spray for piercings, but it doesn't seem to be making that much of a difference. I wanted to try something new and I heard great results from soaps. Um, this one goes back and forth a lot. It's a big debate in the body piercing industry as to whether soaps are necessary or even preferred for aftercare products. Uh, a common mistake that a lot of people make is thinking that healing and aftercare is about like kill, kill, kill the bacteria that's on your piercing and you're like forcing the piercing to heal. That's really not what the, the, the right way to go about it is. You're really trying to just allow the body to heal. So it's more about just kind of 
rinsing the surface area. If you have something like dirt or debris or oil, yes, you can rinse that away. Uh, if it's stubborn, you could use something like a soap on the surface, but one of the last things you wanna do would be to force the jewelry around to try to work soap into the piercing. Uh, soaps aren't meant to be inside a puncture wound, used internally on the body. They can be really inflammatory, they can be really irritating to the piercing, it can really tend to overdry uh, your skin and, and slow down the healing process significantly. So if you do wanna use a soap, use a very gentle soap. You don't wanna use anything with a lot of colors or fragrances in it, um, something gentle. And you're basically lathering your hands lathering the piercing site very gently, letting the soap sit for about a, uh, 30 seconds to a minute, and then rinsing off thoroughly. You're not trying to pick off any dry discharge. You're not trying to force the ring back and forth to, to work soap into the, the piercing. Uh, most body piercers and, and many clients find that they do actually get better results from avoiding things like uh, excess chemicals, soaps, things like that in their aftercare practices uh, in favor of something like a wound wash saline. You're basically just kind of rinsing the area. You can spray off any sort of dry discharge. You could spray the saline on a swab or a piece of gauze and lightly wipe it away, but you're not trying to be very aggressive about your aftercare. You might find uh, better results if you're being a little bit more gentle with it. If you have a question you want answered on a future episode, feel free to email me at piercingwizard at gmail.com. I've got another question here that says, my piercing place has multiple piercers and I've had work done by all of them but I've developed a bit of a preference for one, especially for my genital work. Is it okay to request a specific piercer? It's not a thing of gender, it's just my personal preference. Is there a nice way to ask for that specific piercer? Um, don't feel bad, self-conscious about that at all. Uh, plenty of studios have multiple piercers and they don't take it as a slight if uh, a client chooses one over the other. Uh, a lot of times when, when studios have multiple piercers, it's not just to accommodate large volumes of clientele, it's to give the clientele a choice, you know, whether it's um, a piercer of a specific gender or if it's just a, a personality that, that clicks. Um, body piercers take great pride in building up a clientele, having their regulars, having those solid interactions with them. So if you have a, a studio and you can check in on their, their schedules and you can say, oh, you know, when is piercer X going to be here versus piercer Y? Um, if you go in on a shift and there are multiple piercers, there's nothing wrong with just telling the front counter, oh, you know, I, I wouldn't mind waiting for, uh, you know, such and such piercer. I've been pierced by them in the past. I'm really comfortable with them, so I, I'd prefer to wait for them. Uh, they won't take offense to it at all. It's a very common practice in body piercing studios. So you should feel completely comfortable asking for the body so that you prefer. So that's going to wrap it up for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I always appreciate it. Next week, I'll have another interview with you. I haven't really decided which one yet, though. I've got ones recorded with Elaine Angel, Terry Leroy, Luis Garcia, and Sampa von Cyborg. They're all pretty interesting. I'll get one of those up for you next week. I'm also getting ready to teach for the first time in Brazil. I'm going to a conference in Sao Paulo in about two weeks. Should be a really interesting adventure. I'll be joined by APP board members Luis Garcia and Jeff Saunders. I'm really looking forward to that trip. Hopefully I can get in some more good interviews for you there and keep the show rolling along. I'll see you next week and remember to stay sharp. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved. <laughs>